Welcome to the Sacred Body Podcast, where we investigate trauma resolution, healing, sex, and intimacy, and motherhood, all through the lens of the sacred and wise nature of the body. This season, we're focusing a little bit more on inherited trauma and how our inherited history has impacted our individual paths to wholeness. So if you're here, you're on a journey, and I welcome you every part of you to the conversation. Welcome, everybody, to the Sacred Body Podcast. I'm really honored today to be speaking to Roshni Kavate. Roshni and I met through the Center for Sacred Window Studies. Uh, she graduated ahead of me, which is an Ayurvedic postpartum care training. And Roshni is an artist, healer, and activist. Roshni is the founder of the founder and creative director of Cardamom and Kavate a wellness platform dedicated to reclaiming nourishing practices rooted in ancestral wisdom for collective liberation. She has a much longer bio than that, and I recommend that you go and check it out at cardamomandkavate.com. I'm going to let Roshni introduce herself as far as how she's feeling today, showing up in the world and what her offering is. Um, Roshni, I'm really honored to have you here, and I'd love to hear sort of what's most at the fore for you these days as far as your offering and your focus. Yeah, thanks Stacey for having me. Um, you know, just to give folks a little background, I come from a nursing background. So, you know, I was very much on an academic, uh, corporate or nonprofit career path in the path of like public service and, sort of healthcare in what you think like, you know, the traditional literal sense and working as a nurse for 10 years. And, you know, my most, I think, profound uh, times were at the beginning of my career and at the end of, um, you know, the 10 years, I started in an ICU, a lung and heart transplant ICU. So, you know, I was very aware of it death, but mostly like how we die in this country. You know, I was 20, oh gosh, 22, 23, too young, too young to be witnessing things like that in a way where I didn't know how to, how to respond. Um, you know, I feel like 12 years ago, maybe we didn't have, self-care wasn't a thing, um, you know. So over the course of my career, I, um, the last two and a half, three years, I worked in palliative care. And that's sort of the complete opposite of, you know, I see who care. It's really just witnessing being present with what is and holding a container or creating this, you know, the bowl for whatever emotions are coming up and witnessing just this natural process. And so for me, I think my life journey and my own story of grief and witnessing grief really brought to the forefront, you know, creating a culture change around grief 
its beauty and its value and how we can tap into, you know, it's all of its wisdom. So we can live this really, I, I call it, you know, um, for me, I more than freedom, I believe in just like being our wild selves, whatever that means, you know, outside of gender, outside of whatever norms uh, we may have created, just really like, what does it mean to embody wildness within our body, within our spirit? So I think to me, that's the lens I'm bringing in this work. Um, I'm focusing more on postpartum care and again, bringing Ayurveda, uh, you know, the ancestral tradition from my culture and this grief work and social justice, having worked as a nurse, you know, I'm very aware of, you know, just the inequities in care, especially in reproductive health, that's a big one. So there's a lot of different, you know, lens and focuses that I'm trying to distill into one path going forward. Yeah, well, it's interesting. There's so, so many <laughs> follow, which is how I always feel in these conversations. But I want to acknowledge um, just like peer to peer for a moment, this conversation we were having before we started recording, how much of our passion is just automatically there. It is connected, it is whole. It's not necessarily a task of braiding together these disparate things. Because as you said, if you're working in birth, you're working in social justice. And sure, there's a way to leave that component of your work off the table, but I think it's inherent to the work itself. So it actually, I think, takes some effort to like leave it out, <laughs> which is a whole other conversation and podcast. Um, I think it's a privilege to not see any of that. Yeah. Um, yes, that is another podcast I can, you know, go into it in more detail. But yeah. Mm -hmm. And the element of um, your very, very early exposure to dying and grief is inherent in that process. And I'd just love to hear you talk a little bit more about your understanding of grief and however it percolates in, what was revealed to you about your own cultural or familial conditioning or learning, not necessarily conditioning, but just learning about grief and how to honor life? Did, you know, how did that come forward as you were witnessing um, what you were in your professional life. I'm curious about that, starting with your understanding of grief. Yeah, um, I think grief is, to, my definition would be that it's extremely personal. You know, it's almost seasonal where you are in life. Um, it's, it's, it's very fluid for me, but it's, I think one way to encapsulate it, it's this deep yearning, deep loss, just deep, full-bodied experience. And, you know, it lights you up, it pulls you down. It, I, I call it a full-body experience. There's nothing like it. And we usually think of it as a low, but, you know, I try to think of grief as sort of these colors, you know, it's painting our lives and it's, you know, casting this light 
through which we look at life. And deep down there's there's a deep sorrow, there's you know, deep yearning for something that we wished we had or we had seen or mourning something. And we talk about it in a literal sense of life and death, right? That's a very easy way to understand grief is the lens of bereavement. So if there's been a physical death. And that was certainly true in my work. It, it was literally life or death every day. Um, but I started to notice there was, you know, grief over loss of, you know, this idea of what life was going to be like. It was uh, loss of autonomy. It was loss of, you know, dreams, really. I, to me, that's where um, I like to focus on is grief as this deep shattering, this breaking your heart open um, experience. And whatever those dreams are, are lost, they're no longer. And you're being asked to live in this new world um, and maybe create new dreams. And I'll share a little bit about, you know, my grief story. I, you know, it really did start with my birth. It started, you know, two, 300 years before I was born, really with my, you know, great grandparents. And at the root of that was, you know, culture, Indian culture, um, you know, two, 300 years ago and that overlapping with British colonization. And the two forces meant what women could do and couldn't do and family's history sort of sealed forever. You know, so with British colonization, my family was plunged into poverty. So they lost a flourishing business of, you know, trading silk saris. They, they were trading with what was then Burma. So, you know, my family were trade people, artists. So they had a really thriving, flourishing, vibrant life. So with colonization, you know, that dream ended. That meant my great grandparents were plunged into the path of survival. That's really lasted um, through my mom's life um, until I was really born, I think. So my maternal lineage, if you can call it that, are one of survivors, really surviving what it is to be born in a female body in India. And, you know, that doesn't, you don't have to, you know, kind of have a wild imagination to think like what that life entails. It's one of you know, bondage, one of responsibility, one of being caged, really, and what that does to each generation. So every woman that was born, every daughter that was born, you know, each generation going forward, um, there was this idea that, oh, they'll be more free, they'll get to do what they want. But that really wasn't the story for my grandmother and my mother so when I was born my mom was determined you know that I would you know be the most excellent student I would be so successful in my career especially as her firstborn and only daughter my mom had all these dreams and you know it wasn't until last year really that I didn't really know what what was the seed of her just drive to you know, like just all, her love was very confusing. That's how I can put it. Um, it seemed very potent, um, but it was also very volatile. It was violent at times even. So 
so I always carried this grief of just, you know, I, I didn't have words to describe that feeling, this heaviness that I carried with me. And I saw it in my mother, I saw it in my grandmother. So I knew there was something in our family that, you know, we all sort of like carried on one generation after another. And it was only recently that I realized dream, you know, we were carrying broken dreams and the weight of a life lived unfulfilled where you were just, you know, cooking, cleaning, repeat um, until you died and you had kids. That's it. That was your life, you know? Um, and like what that does to the psyche when you're just there to do chores and, you know, fulfill responsibilities that the society has dictated. Your dreams don't matter. Your interests don't matter. Like you really don't matter. And, you know, even as I say this, it's so heartbreaking. And I'm sure the way, you know, the ways in which those, th that kind of grief is encoded in your body and what that can do to you. Um, and one of my patients in palliative care, she, she told me, you know, she had advanced uh, cancer, breast cancer. She said, you know, like in this lifetime, we may not be cured, right, of whatever ails us but we can at least be on a path of healing. So to me, I don't see this, you know, healing as really necessarily like an end goal that, okay, like if I breathe and if I do my yoga and if I chant the mantra, then, you know, healed in 40 days. Um, but every day I can be reborn um, and really tap into that grief to give me the wisdom to be more free, to be wild. Um, you know, tomorrow, next year, and maybe, you know, birth wild beings. Um, like, that's my wildest dream, I would say, <laughs> is to really yeah. stop this, you know, chain of transmission, I think. And do you think um, that there's something, in, and is there something in your ancestral heritage that even speaks to this? <clears throat> that as much as, you know, our healing is propelled forward through, through not only offspring, but our relationships, right? Our healing ripples out from us, but also the possibility of our healing rippling backwards into our ancestors. Oh, absolutely. You know, people think of like karma as, you know, if you, oh, if I, you know, if I do have good karma or bad karma, to me, I like to think of karma as epigenetics. It's really the inheritance of the experiences, you know, of the resiliency, but also of the trauma from our ancestors. So I'm carrying the karma of, you know, I don't know, 500,000 of years in my body, in my blood. And so the way I move, the way I think, the way I feel, you know, that's already been encoded. Um, I think in this lifetime, I'm just trying to come up to speed to what that is and to figuring out what that story is, right? Um, and I think for my family, at least, it's, it's a life lived where you're just hoping, praying, dreaming, wishing that you could do, you know, this one thing, that you could accomplish this great dream, but you just couldn't because you have to just survive. Um, so I think in my, for me, if I can 
you know, birth my visions, like actually experience what it's like to accomplish, you know, even an artistic idea. I think I'm healing my great grandparents, my grandmother, even my mother, um, because I think that's really what they, their dreams were, that we were all artists and that we get to be artists in our lifetime. So to me, you know, my, my dream and my current practice is, you know, realizing that artistic dream. Mm. And yeah, I want to talk about yeah. some of your projects because it's something I want to experience for myself, but <laughs> drawing from the class that I got to be in of yours yesterday and something <clears throat> that my mentor, who's a pre-birth and birth educator, uh, writes about is the family field. So at conception, we're not only ex you know, being imprinted by the act of conception and those conditions and our mother's mental, emotional, physical state of well-being, but the ancestral fields, the field of unresolved challenges. And of course, that space in Ayurveda, we would call akasha or the etheric space. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday in your class, and I'd love for you to flesh it out a bit more. But this, um, you know, the, the qualities of akasha or ether, the space in which we emerge and grow, it is sound, it's what we hear, and it's vibrational, and it's, it's very sensitive. So even you being here giving voice to what could not be voiced by so many in your lineage, that that alone is such potent healing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, usually there's um, matrimonial ads that are in papers or if you've I don't know, watched Indian TV or movies, um, people boast about, you know, their daughter is, you know, quiet and well-spoken, meaning, you know. Matrimonial ads? matrimonial like if you're looking for a wife um people advertise and so one of the qualities it's usually height maybe skin tone and then you know they're a great cook really well educated but they don't you know speak a lot or don't speak really loudly they're very well spoken or soft spoken you know that's a very you know that's a, that's a quality you want in a wife and <laughs> never get married <laughs> <laughs> I know <laughs> we would be spinsters. We, we would live alone in our own little very cool <laughs> space. I know I know um so like that is what you know that's what's um celebrated right as a culture even though you look at you know the world of all the healing arts, psychology, the root is, you know, um, everything comes from Veda, Ayurveda, yoga, and it's all about sound, it's all about freeing your voice, it's all about speaking, you know, from your deepest core, it's honesty, it's giving voice to what's not being said, it's, you know, sensing, it's giving voice to what you're sensing and putting it out into the universe. Um, to me, you know, chanting is great, but I think 
our words are chance, you know, they have the power to heal, they have the power to influence other people and energy and right action. Mm -hmm. So I, to me, I think of it as an act, an act of activism to really speak our voice. And there's a lot to speak up, <laughs> at least in these times. Yes. And you um, have in your bio and, and even some visuals of it, your ceramic art. And as you were speaking to palliative care, you use the word bowl, like creating a bowl for this care. So I'd love to hear you speak to your own artistic practice and um, how this emerged. Obviously it's been with you for generations, the inclination to honor beauty and create, um, but what has been your personal journey with it? Yeah, I think, um... It's art is something I feel viscerally and I was surrounded um, by a lot of art growing up, you know, just even the silk saris my family wove in our ancestral home. And, you know, I remember like maybe when I was six, seven, we would visit these like ancestral homes where there's a big courtyard in the middle of the house. It's open and there's a loom like a floor loom and there's someone, you know, clicking, clacking, you see the shuttle sort of move. So that sound is very natural. You know, that's like a mantra or a vibration that's, you know, in my body. And my mom was, you know, very avid knitter, quilter. She did embroidery. Um, my grandfather, you know, he sewed. So my whole family has been involved in textile art. You know, they dyed their own, Silk. So I grew up and steeped in that culture. But when I started school and, you know, when I was going to college, art very much became, oh, you do this for fun, you know, an hour, two hours, whatever. Like you can do it for fun, but this cannot be serious. You know, unless maybe you, know, <laughs> you got into like art school with a full scholarship. Like we're definitely not paying for you to go to art school. Um, so, you know, I, I was on a career path um, and I think I now appreciate my parents, you know, as immigrant parents, you don't get very many chances. Again, it's a story of survival. Um, art is seen as indulgence. You know, it's what their great grandparents did, and they didn't get ahead in their eyes, right? They thought, oh, that didn't lead anywhere. Um, you have to, you know, become a doctor, professor, engineer for you to get ahead in life. So there's this really quality of like, art's great, but it, it won't really, you know, it won't fulfill your life. And there's no substance to art. And it wasn't, you know, I think it was maybe like 10 years ago, seven years ago even, that I just started having like years of really bad dreams, I call it. There was just really visual, um, loud paintings that I would see and the paintings would move in my dreams. And it felt like I was going to a museum every single night. So I would wake up exhausted, exhausted. And it was just a pattern of, you know, being like a zombie, but then at night I would just see these, you know, they were very beautiful artistic creations, but they felt like they were torturing me. And I just started journaling 
Um, and the artist way was a big resource for me in sort of tapping and, you know, getting back to my sort of creative spirit and soul. And I realized during the artist way process that my ancestors were artists. Um, they were weavers, potters, literally, and that connection is still alive. And here I am, you know, as meaningful and as, you know, um, nurturing my professional life was, I wasn't an artist. So for me, that meant, you know, picking up clay and just shaping because I didn't need my art to be perfect. I just needed to move with my hands and my body. Uh, I just needed to visualize color. So that just launched this, I, I feel like a whole lifetime of, you know, discovering art for myself again. So I started doing pottery, I started doing dyeing, natural dyeing. My mom's a weaver, so I helped her out with that. I started painting, I started printmaking. And again, it's that, you know, um, like that chance, right? Repetitive move, mo movement of visualizing colors and taking that in and letting your body just soak in that visual explosion. And I think that's been a big part of my healing journey is just making art for art's sake and letting my body absorb that. Um, letting your body absorb the experience of freedom to create is what I hear mm -hmm. a bit of that. Yeah. It's such a beautiful story. And I was struck as you were speaking, like <laughs> how did you arrive at this deep level of self-trust? Oh God. <laughs> I'll just, I won't, I won't clog the airwaves with my, I, I would love to hear your answer, but. Um, I think it comes from just deep suffering, you know, sometimes I joke, it's like, I'm, you know, I'm 35 now, but I feel like, you know, at least like 120 maybe <laughs> in terms of like how much sort of sadness and suffering that's lodged in my body. So when you have that kind of existential, spiritual, whatever, heaviness, um, that you just carry that you know this is not living. Um, I think there's a sense of desperation, but there's also hope in a way that you may, you know, things are going well. I don't, you know, I, I think you can still have hope, but when things are really bad, hope is what gets you through every day. And I think I just hoped that this, you know, this artistic practice will be it, will be the answer. And it really was for me. The moment I just started calling myself an artist, again, you know, that's uh, sound healing, right? Um, but, oh, I'm not just a nurse, I'm also an artist, I'm a creator. When I even started identifying that way, that, you know, that was a somatic shift in my body. So I think I've just been really, um, I don't know, brave, but taking a chance to say, okay, all these things haven't worked for me. Maybe this will be it. I'll give it a try. I don't have much to lose. And really being open. Um, I think I've just been really open for a chance at a richer life and use that suffering. And it surprised me each time. 
So I think the more I practice that, the more I trust that there is more richness coming. You know, you just have to be open and willing. And it's a huge risk to open yourself up that way. Yeah. Would you name as your primary resources that supported you or gave you, um, gave you kind of ballast in taking those risks? I think for me, um, really my patients, you know, when I was working in the hospital, I, I would see sort of what life could be, you know, like life could be just, you know, wishing you had lived a different way of life. So a lot of people, you know, towards the end of life would say, I really wish I went on that trip or I really wish I, you know, did that program. Um, this wish for a second chance of thinking, you know, what is really important? Uh, in my entire career, nobody said, I wish I had 10,000 followers on my Instagram. No <laughs> one has said that. Um, you know, no one has said, I wish I had just a little bit more money or I'd worked, you know, this many more hours. It's the advice that my patients gave me over and over was don't wait to do what is that you really want to do until you retire. You know, we have this idea, oh, once I'm 65, I'll go on that trip to Italy or I'll take that pottery class or I'll sleep when I'm retired. And they were like, just do it now. Like it's already too late. <laughs> so I think when you see something like that, it's, it's almost a cry inside you going, oh my God, I know the, I know the secret now. How can I, you know, how can I not, you know, take a chance of those things? It's almost criminal to continue living life the way, you know, we generally do. And I'll say it's a really difficult practice, you know, to just not be complacent and, you know, do the usual things. It's very hard. Um, but I feel like there are moments of, you know, bravery and risk taking that I take that really pays off. It's very inspiring. Um, I love the acknowledgement and use of the word risk, the risk that it is. I've been uh, reading about being, you know, being in the flow state as an essential component of evolution of consciousness. And what I loved was here, because I'm using the audiobook, it's called The Evolving Self, listening to the uh, narrator say, you know, flow state doesn't just come and like automatically feel good. There's an element of frustration that's essential. Frustration and anxiety, he names those two things. <laughs> to, like, learning a new skill or working harder. And then we get, we arrive at this place of like, ah, oh, like that dam has broken down, but you have to put in some effort mm -hmm. to break down the dam. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I see that the, that's the practice. The yeah. practice is not the flow state, you know? That's, I think, that's the magical piece. Um, you know, there have been years where nothing has happened, you know, but I just sort of pray a lot and hope and wish and, you know, continue to create with the trust that, you know, something will come out of it. 
but I think, yeah, art, evolution, flow state, all of that is deeply humbling is what it is to me, you know, you're sort of putting in all this work, all this labor of love, you don't know how it's going to come out, um, but you just have to trust that what, whatever shape it takes, you know, will blow your mind and it'll be wilder than what you thought it could be. So I think we just have to, there's a lot of waiting, <laughs> you know, impatient waiting, I call it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I want to reflect back. Um, I've heard you say hope several times and, and there's a, a very strong amount of hope and praying and humbly doing the practices, but also a lot of action on your part <laughs> that, I'm, yeah. that I witness, like a very active voice and aligning yourself with others in the world who are doing work that you believe in. And that's, that's something that cannot be underestimated, like the effort there's also action being taken with a clear alignment towards a goal. So, you know, the praying and the hope surely is part of it, but like get off your ass and do something. And you certainly have. Uh -huh. I struggle with that one. I will receive that. I have a really hard time, you know, feeling like I'm doing enough. I think that's the ancestral, you know, karma that I carry with me that, you know, I, the, for this year, a big piece I'm working on is this idea of I am enough and just celebrating my enoughness. Um, you know, the messaging, at least for the women in my family has been, well, it's not enough, you know, do more, try harder. There's so much more we could be doing. It's just this, you know, deep level of dissatisfaction one lives with. So I'm really you know, trying to practice celebration and satisfaction, but also holding on to, you know, okay, I could be doing more, I could be doing this. As an artist, you know, you always want to create more. There's just no way about it. Um, so how do you hold to that frustration of, you know, wanting to work faster, but also honoring, you know, your body's rhythm and its seasonality as well. And so that is a hard practice. I would love it if somebody could just, you know, tell me what the secret is. <laughs> yeah, the um, sort of dynamic that is so present, and I'm I'm imagining because this is not my reality, but being the child of immigrants, that doing more and not quite enough, and there's there's a richer story than that, but. Um, something that you mentioned as to me seeming like a very clear impetus behind those feelings of um, doing more and and yeah right the nature of being an artist and having um, that empathic vision where you, you can see need you can recognize a need and um I think there's something really humane about that. <laughs> really like connected and alive and awake about that sense of there's there's more. There's more that I could do. There's more that I could offer. But also balanced with 
and my body needs a break. I need to rest. I need to go to the beach today. I need to, you know, <clears throat> turn off the screens and turn inward. Um, and and <laughs> speaking of, of turning the most inward, it's a little bit of a hard turn, but something that I really want to dedicate some time to in our conversation is how you arrived at postpartum care and what this work means to you. Yeah. You know, I arrived at postpartum care as I started looking into thinking about, you know, designing my own fertility journey. Um, I thought if I'm considering having a child sometime in the future, I just knew, you know, um, as a nurse and having had a lot of health challenges over the last couple of years, I just knew, okay, you know, the baby will be fine. <laughs> you know, the pregnancy, you know, I don't know, that's, you know, sort of magical. It just sort of happens, right? But after, it's really, I felt like a sense of, you know, activism and mothering. I would have to sort that out myself, you know. I, I can't expect or I didn't expect that someone would come in and say, oh, these are the things you need to eat or this is how you rest. Um, that's not part of our vocabulary. And I've seen so many friends and colleagues just really burnt out after they had children and balancing full-time work, right? Um, breastfeeding or pumping in the midst of, you know, doing a patient call. So I just had witnessed firsthand what it's like to give birth and be in the postpartum window, at least in America. And it's, I would say it's inhumane and criminal, um, the culture that we take for granted. So for me, it just felt a no brainer that if I'm going to have a child, the postpartum period has to be sorted out <laughs> way before. So, you know, I did it for selfish reasons. I just thought I need to figure out how I can take care of myself. And I had worked as a doula um, while I was a nurse. So again, I've seen firsthand what happens after the baby's born. You know, there's a lot of celebration and joy, but I really saw there was a lot of sadness. You know, people couldn't pinpoint what that was but I could just sense this heaviness, the sense of loss. And I came to recognize, recognize it as this deep you know, loss of identity. Your whole life is upside down, turned around now, and you're expected to be happy, not complain, to get back to work, to be producing at a love, you know, the same level before you had this child, but you're not allowed this time to just be a different person now on you know yeah. maybe all those expectations don't apply to you anymore so I really for me it was this learning wanting to learn this practice and art of how to be a new being again and something yeah. really sorry to interrupt you but I wanted to just make this connection that I I heard right at the beginning um the when you were describing grief and your inherited experience of like, there's this expectation that this is how you will be as a woman. And I think that, you know, just culturally there are expectations on all of us, right? So to get that out of the way, but this, you know, having lived a life where people get to 
get to know and expect certain things from you. And maybe that feels normal and natural to you up until the point of giving birth. And then I don't care who you are, everything changes. But the rest of your family, your community doesn't necessarily come along with you into that transformation. And that is like the implicit grief in becoming a mother. Mm, wow. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that uh, that way. Yeah. That you're really alone in this transformation. Right. Yeah. And how that clashes. Like the comfort of like being witnessed by another human being for who you are is mm -hmm. like not there. It's no, not, there. not at all. <laughs> if anything, yeah. Um, yeah, that witnessing does not exist. And yeah, I think going forward in my career, at least, I wanted to be in a circle where our vulnerabilities were witnessed, you know, of just different stages of life. I had done that as a palliative care nurse and that was very fulfilling. So I thought this was just a natural, you know, path to be on is witnessing someone at their most vulnerable, um, and small ways in which you can nourish someone, you know, starting with just their presence. And obviously, you know, there's wonderful food and body work and, you know, we can go into sort of the nitty gritty of the care piece. But I think just the acknowledgement and the presence can be so life altering too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the presence of uh, another adult human person <laughs> expectations for how you're going to feel or what you're going to say or what you're going through is so profound. I have visceral memory of being visited by a friend who was actually at my birth and she brought me some mm -hmm. cookies and she brought me this journal that she had made with my son's name on it and oh. like just a couple of really thoughtful gifts. And, you know, she sat at the foot of my bed, just knowing she's got three children of her own and she's been through this experience, obviously. And just her sitting at the foot of my bed with no expectation and also her own deep personal knowing, which is not necessarily needed, but that mm -hmm. of expectation, I suppose, and an offering to me and just like, she didn't need me to entertain her. She didn't need me right. to offer something to drink. Like she was yeah. just fully for me. And it was so, I mean, I can, I can feel the tears coming now. Like, yeah. oh my God, what a gift that was. Yeah. I'm, I love the word you said offering, right. Without any expectation of anything in return. I love that there, I, I can't think of moments that, where it's just pure offering, um, where someone just, it's like, here it is, I'm giving you my, you know, all these treats, gifts, you know, not because it's your birthday or whatever, um, but just deep appreciation of you. Yeah, I think we all need that so much, so much. Yeah, on just a day-to-day -day basis, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
What I was going to say is um, another very important reason why I became a postpartum doula is, um, or a coach or, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, is, you know, we think of it as, you know, right after birth. But for me, you know, I haven't um, given birth, but I had a pregnancy that ended in a loss. And I think it's sort of, again, universal that pregnancy loss and how we deal with it in our society and culture, even in our healthcare system is just awful and heartbreaking, heartbreaking, you know, the, yeah. So to me, you know, I'd experienced that and there's just no playbook for, you know, what do you do after, you know, the kinds of comments I've gotten from medical providers was, oh, if it wasn't planned, you know, you won't be too upset, you know, stuff like that, <laughs> where I was so confused as to what they said, so I had to repeat it many times to myself, and I asked my friend, like, does this seem offensive to you, and her, you know, she is like screaming and yelling, and I, and it still hasn't hit me, and you don't expect such really violent words to ever land on you in such a vulnerable moment, right? Here you are, like calling the number on a Saturday, hoping, you know, they'll tell you what to do. And if that's the response from a physician, you go, okay, um, you know, what should, how should I be grieving? What should my response be? Um, and, you know, I was deeply sad too that even my partner kind of didn't know how to care for me in that moment. And that was really heartbreaking. And, you know, here I was sort of, I had no idea what was happening because again, we don't talk about loss. Um, I thought something was terribly wrong. And, you know, I was just operating from my body wisdom. Like my body was taking over and telling me what to do mentally. I don't think I knew what I was doing. But I just knew, you know, I'm craving something fatty and chocolatey. I need something nourishing. You know, I ate this like um, cafe gratitude, like I am whole, you know, quinoa ball. <laughs> like I just wanted like sprouts and quinoa, like something that I don't like usually crave, but in that moment, like that's what I wanted. And this like tahini chocolate milkshake. So it, it's like the body knew what to do. And I just felt like I need body work. So it was like, I was doing all these things that are very much, you know, postpartum care. Um, but I felt really sad that there wasn't anyone that just sort of came in and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We'll take care of you. This so is how we'll make meaning. In your body and not the mm -hmm. ones running the show. Like, I'm right. Yeah. So I'm especially passionate about you know, creating this culture, even around loss, like there, you know, you don't have to have a birth, maybe it ends in different kinds of uh, loss. And what a gift to have that kind of presence and care, you know, in that kind of moment. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's so much to say about the appalling <laughs> treatment <laughs> of, of pregnant people in our culture and increasingly other cultures because we're exporting our medical model, which is horrifying. Um, but I was doing some research on attachment theory and pre and perinatal mm -hmm. psychology. And 
it was like, you know, one day someone thought maybe there's a relationship between <laughs> the mother and the embryo growing inside of her. Like, I wonder if there is when it's sort of like, are you crazy? Like, yeah. even if there's not yet a very deliberate conscious relationship like you're not like oh thank god I'm pregnant and talking to your baby like it, it's not that it's the fact that your entire biological system has shifted its focus has changed course and you are now growing a living being inside your body and I I obviously feel very passionate about this <laughs> um, my story also includes loss. That was my first pregnancy experience. Mm -hmm. And like revolutionary to me to have a teacher acknowledge that after loss, you're postpartum. Right. For the rest of your life, right? Like we're, yeah. Why isn't that, that's like obvious biological fact. How is that not? Well, and then it, reveals even more about our medical model of care which is like after you have the baby just what's the big deal is the medical right. approach which is of course absurd <laughs> oh yeah I mean I I don't know if you I, I'm sure you do um your interests are so wide-ranging like I'm super passionate about you know pelvic health yeah. and again super criminal <laughs> after a birth or a loss there is no postpartum pelvic care in the U.S. that's standardized, um, you know, and the level of injury and pain people have to live in, and that's seen as normal. That's a normal recovery, um, that you're constantly peeing and in pain. That's normal. Um, you know, I mean, that's truly, you know, like I know a lot of medical care has a lot of sexist, you know, roots and foundations, but yeah i think that's like really there's so many areas where we can you know really start to like kind of create change i think we're nowhere close to you know really supporting people through these cycles yeah and the something i've been thinking about the whole time you've been talking is the inability for most of us, particularly Americans, to hold tension. And that, you know, we're, it's such a binary culture in every way. Right. <clears throat> when you're talking about death and offering palliative care, like this, a new life and the end of life are always side by side. Mm -hmm. Death knocking at birth's door. Yeah. There's always something emerging from the loss of a life, a life planned or a physical life. Um, and not that that, again, we sort of like shift to this binary focus of like, well, you should be happy then, or, mm -hmm. you know, get away from the grief. It's always get away from the grief. It's always get away from the more uncomfortable side of things, but like, this dynamic tension of birth and death is something that I'm really fascinated by. And for that reason, love the way you describe grief as not only a full body experience, but what did you say? Like 
lightning or you use some language that was just like a little bit shocking to me, but it's like, oh, wow. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's yeah. to be sure. It's, it's a shattering. Yeah, I think maybe that's what I said. Yeah. And that's and how my doula described childbirth to me, which I'm so grateful to her for because I was at least in some sense prepared for what I was going to have to do. I was going to have to mm -hmm. let myself be shattered into a million tiny pieces. Right. Yeah. Um, mm, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's like this egg, literally like eggs cracking open and you lose some shards and maybe you have to grow a new shell. Um, and that's why I like the idea of just like, you know, leaving the cocoon during the postpartum window. Such beautiful um, language. Would you talk right. a little bit about that um, work that you've created? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really born out of this very organic experience I've had. And um, I think it's my lens of teaching is how do we create this, again, space, structure for healing, for nurturing, for revitalizing. And when I say weaving, you know, it's literally honoring my ancestors who were weavers. So this idea of creating warmth, of enveloping someone, you know, this, um, and it's that interconnectedness, um, you know, it's interconnectedness of families, of relationships, you know, with the earth. So just noticing all the ways in which we're connected, you know, to the plants, to the food we eat, to the people who grow it, to, you know, the folks who are helping us, you know, our family members and our ancestors. So weaving all of that and all those stories um, as a bowl, again, for us to be reborn, really, yeah, through this shattering process, <laughs> yeah. I feel pretty clear and, and I, I mentioned this because of your class yesterday, I was able to give words to this. Like grief is such a profound opportunity and it requires support. It requires not guidance of a particular kind. Um, and I think some of that is intuitive guidance, but like really being empowered in our own intuition of what is needed and also having mm -hmm. someone to bear witness to the shattering that like ongoing I feel like grief is one of the most pulsatory human experiences we have it's like this oh I love that constant yeah. expansion and contraction where sometimes like, I'm so open and I'm so sensitive in a way that's actually okay and then other times it's like back <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fun a lot of fun for sure and having a competent compassionate witness who's not right. there to tell you how you should feel or what the process should mm -hmm. look like um yeah. i'm imagining part of your offering being that witness right yeah um i think that's where i felt deeply passionate is to you know help people kind of you know, be on their own personal path um, as they move through grief, especially in the postpartum window. 
And it's been just so deeply satisfying and inspiring for me to witness, you know, someone else doing that as I'm walking alongside um, with them. And again, like you said, it's not about me giving advice. I don't tell people, you know, here's what you should do. Here's what helps. It's that it's I create the structure, you know, I create the bowl for you to just sort of think into, to rest into. You know, I, I don't like the idea of falling apart, yeah. um, you know, which is what we talk about when someone's grieving or, you know, maybe going through a transformative period. It's the idea of resting into it um, because that's what it requires. It requires a lot of rest, quiet contemplation. And, you know, I bring in my ancestral practices, a lot of Ayurvedic practices, but Ayurveda in a very sensual way, very nurturing way. Um, again, Ayurveda, the way it's practiced, um, <clears throat> I think in the U.S. more so has this very, I don't know, very clinical prescriptive quality to it. You know, you have all these like herbs, these routines, they feel very rigid. Um, and I appreciate routine and what that can do to someone who's going through a grieving period where you know time is sort of very fluid and you don't have a sense of you know time and day or meal times but I think it's super important and the way we heal and the way we come alive is through our senses so if we can just start attuning to what feels good in our body right I can't tell you drink this tea this is supposed to do this right um you really have to connect with it and bringing in that ancestral piece, um, you know, again, a lot of folks think Ayurveda is strictly Indian, but it's not. Ayurveda is nature. So whatever, you know, uh, nature means to your lineage, to your ancestry, that's what you should be, you know, um, like partaking and communing with. So, you know, if you're from Europe, that may mean like rosemary and sage, Right. If you're from, you know, the Middle East or, you know, there's like, it's very different, but we all have that qualities of what nature is, of what's warming, of what's tonifying, of what's soothing. So I don't necessarily think everyone, you know, needs to drink turmeric ginger tea. You know, we all have that equivalent in our culture. Um, so I help support people, you know, reconnect with their ancestral connection again, in this moment of deep transformation. And we use, you know, the power of our own voice to give voice to our story. I'm, you know, I believe that speaking your story is sound healing. Um, you know, you don't need bowls and all the bells and whistles. It's, you know, use your voice, use your throat, use your belly. So I think embodying your grief and giving voice to it and making it come alive. Um, a lot of people feel like they should hide it or bury it somewhere, but I help people digest their grief, you know, from start to finish. And in Ayurveda, you know, we talk about this idea of ojas when, you know, all the digestion, when it's absorbed into your body, it's your emotional, physical, spiritual state. There's a vitality there's this juiciness and ojas is a sweet quality and that to me is grief when digested well is the sweetness 
that gives you, you know, the wisdom to live your truest life, your wildest life. And isn't that a gift? Uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody would say no to that, um, even when it's really, really painful. And I think it's a, it's a path that more, that's more comfortable to walk on if there is that sense of community and companionship. And that's where I come in. Mm. How, how wonderful to be supported by someone like you. I'm just feeling so grateful um, to know you and to have had this time with you and so thrilled to be lifting this offering up and getting it out to more people. Um, I've appreciated this time with you so much, Roshni, and feel really moved by you, uh, you sharing your experience. I appreciate you um, sharing so openly and would love to just close our time together by giving you the opportunity to name any offerings you have coming up that are time sensitive, uh, any classes that you're offering and letting people know how they can find you. Yeah, um, yeah, the best way to stay in touch with me is uh, on Instagram at cardamom and Cavate and on my website, that's cardamomandcavate.com. And I do have a six week workshop starting in um, sort of early March that sort of goes into this idea of leaving the cocoon. How do we do that with ancestral foods rooted in Ayurveda wisdom? And I bring in a lot of grief and wisdom as well. Um, I think food is such an easy entry to nourish our body. And to me, no matter you know what's happening in life, there's always a recipe of food herbs for that. Um, so if we can you know keep the agni going for the metabolism, for the digestion of grief, or whatever experiences, you know, I think that's a way in which we can move forward. So I'm really excited to offer that six-week um, experience. I'm calling it a retreat um, because that's what I want it to be for people to, you know, it's open to um, folks who are birth workers, who are pregnant people, or who have given birth. So, you know, anyone can access this wisdom. And it's, I want it to be as experiential and sensual as possible. Mm -hmm. So that's something that's coming up. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank, yeah. you. Thank you for having me. This was such a treat. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's so rare to, you know, just like talk about all the stuff that you're thinking that, you know, you can't just freely share with your partner or <laughs> just people. So yeah, it's been a real treat to talk. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you like this episode, please leave a comment. Please share through all your channels. And you also have the opportunity to make a donation to ensure that these amazing conversations continue with ease. I appreciate you being here. I'm curious to hear how this conversation has impacted you. 
and I hope that you'll join us again.